Welcome to Into Security, Info Security Magazine's monthly podcast, bringing you news highlights and topical debate. Hello, and welcome to the September edition of the Into Security podcast. I'm your host, Eleanor Dalloway, Editorial Director at Info Security Magazine. And joining me today is our Deputy Editor, Benjamin David, and our reporter, James Coker. So thanks for being here. How are you guys? Yeah, very well, thank you. Yes, glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, they're saying that, but actually the reality is we are all exhausted because we are recording this month's podcast on the back of what has been a really great but really tiring two-day autumn online summit. We produced 14 different sessions um, across a range of two days um, with so many fantastic speakers. And I have to say, even as an insider, it was so fascinating listening to the insights given on a wide variety of topics. This summit included sessions on zero trust, internet resiliency, artificial intelligence and automation, culture, ransomware, and much more. I think when I've sort of tried to reflect on it myself this morning, I think my personal highlights were the keynotes from three incredible speakers. We had Alyssa Miller, we had Professor Lisa Short, and we had Tash Norris. And not by design, but we had all three keynote speakers were female. Well, of course, it was by design because it was the design of trying to get the very best speakers in place. But it was just a happy coincidence that all were women. And they were just brilliant. It was engaging, captivating, inspiring. Um, If you weren't able to join us over the last couple of days and life just got in the way, you can now access all of those sessions on demand via our website whenever you want. So please do take a look. Um, You can find that page at infosecurity-magazine.com slash online hyphen summits. But enough of reflecting on that, back to all things podcast. And today we're going to continue our newly found themed approach following last month's podcast where we took a look at zero trust. This month, we're going to focus on the topic of authentication and in particular, the shift towards passwordless options, um, which is definitely music to my ears. This includes a look back at an Info Security print magazine feature that was written on this very subject. And then later on, James is going to interview a leading advocate for the move to a passwordless future, Andrew Shikiar, who is the executive director of Fast Identity Online. Also known as the Fido Alliance, uh, Fast Identity Online is an open industry association whose mission is to develop authentication standards to help reduce the world's over-reliance on passwords, which, of course, hopefully will then make security more secure. But before all that, let us bring you a quick message from our sponsor for this episode. Our podcast today is sponsored by Talis Cloud Protection and Licensing a worldwide leader in data protection, authentication and access management. This division of Thales Group provides everything an organisation needs to protect and manage its data, identities and intellectual property through encryption, advanced key management, tokenisation and authentication and access management. Thanks, James. And of course, thank you to our sponsor, Talis. To begin with, though, as always, we're going to do a roundup of some of the most significant or interesting information security news stories that we have recently reported on. And first up, we're going to come to you, Ben, um, and over to the MOD data breach. Yes. So earlier this month, the UK's Ministry of Defence, or the MOD, 
sent an email that exposed the data of more than 250 Afghan interpreters who worked for British forces. Now, a second data breach by the MOD has been uncovered, potentially compromising the safety of Afghans legible to relocate to the UK. An investigation is currently underway. Now, the MOD has apologised and said they would be offering extra support. In this breach, MOD officials sent an email to 55 people with all the names and email addresses seen by everyone in the message. The email recipients, at least being from the Afghan National Army, were informed that UK relocation officials could not contact them and were requested to update their details. An MOD spokeswoman said, we have been made aware of a data breach that occurred earlier this month by the Afghan relocation and assistance policy team. Steps have now been taken to ensure that this does not happen in the future. Now, the first data breach that happened earlier this month, which involved email addresses of dozens of Afghan interpreters who worked for British forces, resulted in the MOD reportedly suspending an official and launching an investigation into the data breach, which UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has described as unacceptable. An MOD spokesperson said, we apologise to everyone impacted by this breach and are working hard to ensure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I think this truly was one of those unbelievable news stories where you just read it and think, oh, my God. Um, I actually saw a lot of commentary on this on Twitter with many industry peers and friends um, talking about it with their heads in their hands. So thank you so much for that. I'm going to hop over to James now um, talking about cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Eleanor. This is the news that the US Treasury has added a Russian cryptocurrency exchange called SUEX to its sanctions list after claiming that the firm helped facilitate ransomware payments for countless groups. And the Treasury estimates that 40% of its transaction history is associated with what they call illicit actors. And uh, another recent analysis found that the the broker SUEX has received over $160 million in Bitcoin alone from illegal and high risk sources. Um, These include the notorious ransomware groups, Riot, Conti and Maze, dark websites like Hydra Market, as well as cryptocurrency scammers. So linked to this news, the the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Controls, or OFAC, provided an update designed to remind ransomware victims of the risks involved in paying cyber criminals. Specifically, payment of certain groups on on sanctions lists like Evil Core may result in penalties levied by the government on the victim organisation. Uh, in a statement, the Treasury said OFAC has updated the advisory to emphasise the importance of improving cybersecurity practices and reporting to and cooperating with appropriate US government agencies in the event of a ransomware attack. Such reporting, as the advisory notes, is essential for US government agencies, including law enforcement, to understand and counter ransomware attacks and malicious cyber actors. Um, There was also another related story that was broken by the Wall Street Journal this week that the US government is set to announce a range of new measures that include sanctions to deter cryptocurrency businesses from getting involved in laundering and and facilitating ransomware payments. So we're clearly seeing a big push here from the US government to to try and sort of disrupt the use of cryptocurrencies by cyber criminals, um, most notably to receive ransomware payments, which is an issue we've seen all too often this year. 
year. So security experts have broadly welcomed these developments, but have noted that sanctions and measures such as this will need to really be applied globally to other exchanges that are facilitating this type of activity. And obviously, that's the real challenge when it comes to, to dealing with something like cryptocurrency. Yeah, thanks, James. I'm actually going to continue along the lines of the cryptocurrency theme. And I'm not ashamed to admit that cryptocurrency is something that I really struggle to get my head around, actually. I think it's so complex. But anyway, uh, confession made. Let me discuss the story that we reported on that wrapped Bitcoin worth more than $12 million has been stolen from the decentralized finance protocol P Network. The cross-chain project announced the theft of 277 bitcoins on September the 19th via Twitter, ascribing the hack to a code base vulnerability. The theft was also executed on Binance Smart Chain, which featured in the biggest ever DeFi heist in history, the 610 million poly network hack that took place back in August. So as a bit of background, P-Network supports multiple blockchains and wrapped tokens increase interoperability between different blockchains by making it possible for currency created on one blockchain to cross onto another. Like I say, this is where my my head just starts to explode thinking about it. Um, In a statement, P-Network said the other bridges were not affected. All other funds in the P-Network are safe. Later on, it did add that it had identified the bug, but would keep certain data bridges closed until a fix was found. Interestingly, P-Network then took the step of publicly offering the hacker 12.5% of their total illegal haul if the funds were returned, tweeting to the Black Hat hacker, although this is a long shot, we're offering a clean 1.5 million bounty, uh, and that's in US dollars, if funds are returned. So there's a number of really interesting aspects to this story. Firstly, whether any of the funds stolen will be returned by the hacker, as it was in the 610 million heist last month, or whether law enforcement will be able to intercept the money as it gets transferred, which is something that, again, we have seen earlier on this year. This story also re-emphasizes the need for companies involved in the movement of cryptocurrency to enhance their defenses, as it's clear that cyber criminals will be continuously on the lookout for any vulnerabilities they can exploit in their systems. Goodness, like I say, mind blown. Um, But the fourth and final story that we're going to bring you today um, with Ben is about the cybersecurity vulnerabilities that could affect millions of cameras. So over to you, Ben. Thank you. Yes. So on Sunday, video surveillance giant Hikvision posted a security advisory on its website, warning customers of a cyber vulnerability that could impact millions of cameras and NVRs deployed globally. The command injection vulnerability could allow threat actors to have complete control of compromised devices and was discovered by cybersecurity researcher Watchful IP in June and first reported on Monday by IPVM. According to the security advisory, the vulnerability received a base score of 9.8 out of 10 per the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, or CVSS, which Watchful IP called the highest level of critical vulnerability. Although the video surveillance giant has not disclosed how many products are likely impacted, instead only posting product names and firmware versions, 
IPVM estimates that more than 100 million devices could be affected. Now, in a letter to its partners, Hikvision informed integrators to download an updated version of firmware on its website to remediate the vulnerability. It also said, we recognize that many of our partners may have installed Hikvision equipment that is affected by this vulnerability. And we strongly encourage that you work with your customers to ensure proper cyber hygiene and install the updated firmware. Higvision also said it worked with Watchful IP to patch the vulnerability. Additionally, the company has patched all vulnerabilities reported to the company in its latest firmware version. Higvision is a CVE numbering authority and has committed to continuing to work with third-party white hat hackers and security researchers to find, patch, disclose, and release updates to products in a timely manner. That is commensurate with our CVE, CNA partner companies, vulnerability management teams, the letter adds. Hikvision strictly complies with the applicable laws and regulations in all countries and regions where we operate and our efforts to ensure the security of our products go beyond what is mandated. Thank you, Ben. So we bring our news section to an end now, um, and I'd like to bring to you a quick message from our podcast sponsor, Talis. When it comes to authentication and access management, Talis understands that the move to the cloud brings an increasing need to protect digital identities and ensure a strong authentication and authorization mechanism to prevent attacks from happening. In a cloud-based environment where everyone is an outsider, legacy access security solutions create blind spots and introduce more vulnerabilities than protections. Businesses are looking for access management solutions that ensure a robust cloud security posture and regulatory compliance without harming user experience, allowing businesses to thrive in an ever-changing global environment. This is the world in which Talis Cloud Protect and licensing excels. We're now going to take a look back at a feature article that we wrote on passwordlessness. <laughs> is that a word? Over to you, Benjamin and James, um, to talk about that feature from Kate O'Flaherty. Yes, thank you, Eleanor. So last year, Kate O'Flaherty penned a brilliant article for the 2020 Q3 issue of the Info Security Print magazine entitled, A Passwordless Future, Are Organizations Ready? Now, this was written amid numerous studies suggesting that traditional usernames and passwords are on the way out. For example, Microsoft has said that 150 million people are using passwordless logins each month. Additionally, Gardner predicts that 60% of large and global enterprises and 90% of mid-sized firms will implement passwordless methods in more than 50% of use cases by 2022. The reason for this trend is cybersecurity experts view hacked password credentials as a prominent cause for the rising number of data breaches occurring, with easy-to-guess passwords used for multiple logins being a common occurrence. Even though multi-factor authentication can help, sophisticated attacks can now even manipulate SMS one-time passcodes or 
authenticator apps through man in the middle or relay attacks. Many high-profile firms are now introducing passwordless options for their customers. For example, users of Apple's iOS operating system can authenticate their accounts using security keys. In contrast, the use of biometrics like fingerprint and facial recognition technology is commonplace on modern smartphones. Biometrics, though, in particular, are becoming more popular, with Uflacrity citing Gemma Moore, director of Cyberis, who stated, these have the advantage that a user does not need to manage separate devices to gain access to the resources they need. They only need themselves. However, the, the article also proposed that perhaps this reality isn't so simple, um, with many experts believing that passwords will indeed continue to exist for a long time to come yet. This is partly because many organisations simply aren't ready to be rid of them yet, and that's primarily due to legacy systems that rely on passwords, and this would require significant IT system transformation to overcome. In addition, passwordless options like biometrics are not without their own issues. A big challenge is what can be done when biometric authentication is, is breached, because um, at least with passwords, they, they can be changed. Whereas if a fingerprint, for example, is exposed, then um, there's not much you can do about that. Additionally, while biometric technology is improving all the time, there are still instances of false positives and negatives, um, particularly when it comes to devices like laptops. So O'Flaherty cited James Bohr, who's director at Bohr's security consultancy, who said, in some cases, you can bypass facial recognition by simply holding a photo up or using a 3D printer. O'Flaherty concluded her article by saying, a passwordless future is possible, but it's clear many organisations simply aren't ready for this, at least yet. For now, the best thing any company can do is take advantage of robust, preferably multi-factor authentication using biometrics and security keys. Yeah, and I've started to use a password manager myself on the advice of people in the industry, and that has made things easier for me, but it's certainly not without its own sort of complications. I remember Wendy Nather saying to me, and she was the first person to sort of be brave enough to ever say this, I think, but we were sat in San Francisco having um, an informal interview. I think we were actually sat on the floor because we couldn't find anywhere to sit. And she said, it is better to just write your password down on a post-it and put it on your desk than it is to try and remember all these complicated things in your head, forget them, need constant password resets. So, and, and, and that really struck me as something, a piece of advice that was just completely and utterly unique to anything I'd ever heard before. But it is such an interesting topic and definitely one of those areas of cybersecurity that needs a lot of work. James, I believe you've caught up with the Fido Alliance to discuss this topic in more detail. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I recently spoke to Andrew Shikiar, who is Executive Director and CMO at the Fido Alliance, and asked him about the, the passwordless options available to organisations and how these can be implemented safely. Awesome. Well, let's have a listen to that now then. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. I just wanted to begin by asking you what are the general weaknesses of traditional password authentication and have these weaknesses been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic in your view? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I could talk all day about the fundamental weaknesses in password-based authentication, but I'll, I'll try to be succinct. Um, 
You know, the, the core problem with, with passwords is that it's a knowledge-based factor that sits on a server. Um, and anything that's knowledge-based you know, can be spoofed. Someone else could know, someone else could find out, someone else could steal. Anything on a server, you know, eventually can and will be stolen. So any sort of kind of human-readable, knowledge-based shared secret that sits on a server is a you know, very risky and, frankly, just not fit-for-purpose approach to user authentication. COVID-19 has certainly exacerbated this. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of data that points to um, a, a dramatic increase in attacks, you know, met several fold, um, shortly after you know, lockdown happened, um, simply because uh, hackers and attackers are, are smart and they're capitalists and, and they try to take advantage of a situation. You know, a lot of people had kind of broad digital transformation. A lot of companies had broad digital transformation plans, you know, in the start of 2020. Uh, which are largely focused on bringing the systems, services, and people online, but they were, you know, they weren't meant to be uh, implemented in, in a, a two to three month period, which, which is what COVID, you know, forced to happen. Because all of a sudden, there were entire workforces sitting at home. Say, 15% of a, a bank's customers who still did business in branch all of a sudden had to be brought online, um, which created an awesome opportunity if you're a hacker, uh, because you have employees who are generally susceptible to phishing, who probably have pretty weak, you know, defenses uh, to their corporate um, networks um, sitting at home. You know, that was a, a very natural attack vector. Likewise, you know, for a kind of more, um, you know, less digital savvy consumer base uh, who are new to online banking, that's also, you know, in online services, that was also a very attractive attack vector. And so um, we saw some statistics, like I think Google during the, you know, the, the, from February to April 2020, um, we're blocking around 18 million COVID-themed phishing and ransomware attempts each day. Um, so, you know, it's a very long-winded answer to your question of, yes, COVID certainly um, accelerated and exacerbated the, the risks associated with knowledge-based authentication. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, and what, what are the main passwordless authentication methods that, that are emerging? And, and are these more secure than passwords? Yes. Well, I mean, so there's a couple of things that need to happen. So fundamentally, you know, where I like to see the market shift is from um, a, a dependence on, again, knowledge-based factors to what I'll call possession-based factors. Um, possession-based meaning that you can prove that you're, you know, you're touching your device or you're with your device, or perhaps it's even, you're more likely, it's actually a biometric, which uniquely identifies, you know, a user to their device. That, you know, the possession-based approach to user authentication, you know, prevents well, it prevents people, it's unspoofable, right? And, and it prevents these highly scalable remote attacks um, because you need to literally be touching your device or holding your device. So any sort of attack that happens on a one-to-one -one basis versus on a, a one to millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions, as we've seen with some of these breaches. Coming back to the question, what are we going to move to, you know, beyond passwords? I, I think, you know, ultimately the market's moving towards this possession-based approach to user authentication. Now, in the short term, some of this is just kind of, a matter of retraining user behaviors, right? So a lot of us will use, let's say on your mobile phone, your handset, you'll use a biometric. So whether it's Android fingerprint or Touch ID, Face ID, or if you're on a you know, laptop, Windows Hello, a lot of service providers are just leveraging that, but also there's still a password sitting on the server, but in the short term, the user flow is passwordless, right? So we need to start actually training these users to you know, log into things this way. You know, getting people to understand that the same thing they do to unlock their device is what they can now do to securely log on to services. I see that as an interim step, right? It's kind of a training step where people are being you know, 
relearning behaviors, right? Relearning that, wait, I don't need to look for that username password dialog box. Um, I can use my device biometric. But beyond that, ultimately what we need to do is fully replace the passwords that sit on a server with FIDO key pairs or key pairs, if you will. All right, so any sort of possession-based or at least a FIDO approach possession-based authentication leverages what's called asymmetric public key cryptography, um, which is a mouthful. Um, but what it really means is that instead of a password sitting on a server and the, and the key, if you will, being in the, the user's brain, it's a unique key pair set up for each account where what sits on a server is a public key and the corresponding private key, which is unique to the user and, and the device, sits on the device. And only the user can unlock that device, either by, excuse me, unlock that private key, if you will, um, either by proving possession um, or by you know, actual user verification based on a biometric. And so once we get to this point where instead of on a server, you have passwords, which are highly valuable to hackers can be sold and, and purchased and restuffed. Um, when all you have is a public key, this really changes the dynamic dramatically because a public key has no material value. I can give you all my public keys. You can harvest all my public keys. You can't do anything with them. Um, and so that's where you can really start to turn the tide on these you know, massive scalable attacks and data breaches that have been plaguing, um, plaguing all of us you know, for, for you know, several years now. Thank you, Andrew. Really interesting. And would you be able to tell us about some of the some of the other recent activity that, that FIDO have been undertaking in this space? Yeah. Um, so FIDO as an organization does three things. First, we create technical specifications uh, focused on user authentication and related technologies that will you know, help protect users and enterprises alike. Secondly, we run certification programs, which is very important. Right? So, so companies build products against these specifications. Um, we can be affirmed that they conform to specifications and also that they interoperate with other products. This means that a service provider or an enterprise looking to deploy FIDO can license any one of these hundreds of products um, and they'll all work together, which gives them, you know, not just a stronger infrastructure, but also an interoperable one that can is feature-proofed um, against vendor lock-in. And then the third thing we do is a lot of um, kind of market education, um, and best practice building, you know, both through internal working groups we have that look at different deployment scenarios where companies that have deployed FIDO are you know, working in, in essentially user groups to establish and publish best practices, but also through other external things we do um, to educate the, mar the market at large. So that includes having conversations like this one. Um, also, we have a conference series called Authenticate, uh, which includes a our, our first in-person uh, and hybrid uh, conference coming up in October uh, where people can kind of learn about best practices for how to deploy FIDO. Um, but also, you know, we're looking at, you know, one activity we took on this year, which I think is very important, was a usability study. You know, I mentioned a few minutes ago that you know, part of the process to getting the password list is, is helping kind of retrain user behaviors. And I think, you know, based on the companies I'm talking to are looking to deploy FIDO, the problem is certainly part technical, but there's a lot of usability concerns. And so we did a very extensive set of tests. Um, and this effort was led by UX designers from companies such as you know, Visa, Intuit, um, JP Morgan Chase, uh, Wells Fargo, you know, a lot of big brands who have experts and Microsoft and who have expertise in the space. They helped us design a series of tests um, that looked at basically identifying you know, the, the best practices for a FIDO authentication implementation for desktop authenticators, right? So if you're going to be using Touch ID on a MacBook or Windows Hello on a PC, what's the best way to, for that user to be engaged um, to enroll for FIDO authentication? And what we found 
um, was that is, is a subtle things that made the biggest difference, right? So how do you message this to a user and where do you message it on a login screen, right? How do you prompt people to enroll? And once they're enrolled, how do you um, make sure that they continue to use this for logins on an ongoing basis? Um, and so a lot of it came down to messaging, uh, prompts on the login screen, also a lot of education. Because what we saw through this testing that we did is that as users were enrolling, you know, they had some very legitimate and basic questions. Like, hey, wait, I'm using Touch ID. Um, does that mean my bank now has a biometric? Right? And so we, we you know, put in educational guidance on how to express to consumers that know the biometric stays on your device. Or that if you're using, say, your device PIN within this hello, that that is actually something that's local to you and, and not transmitted over the wire and also highly secure. So coming back to the question, some of the initiatives we have, you know, I'd say the UF guidelines work that we did was probably the most one of the most critical things we did this year. And those guidelines are free for download on the FIDO Alliance website for any, anyone interested in you know, seeing what these established best practices look like. So between that and Authenticate, I think those are two very good examples of what we're doing to help educate the market at large. That's really interesting. Thank you, Andrew. And and just finally, um, do you have any other advice for, for organizations about how they can sort of securely move away from the traditional username and passwords to to these new authentication methods? Yeah, I think every every organization needs to have a passwordless strategy. Hopefully it's underway, and if it's not, it's not too late, right? There's no shame in that, but now's the time to get moving with it. Um, you know, I'd encourage people to look at um, your whole, you know, authentication in the broader context of your identity stack as well. You can certainly decouple. In fact, a lot of companies are wisely decoupling authentication from their IAM stack, um, but you need to look at this holistically. Um, and I'd encourage them to, you know, do some research, you know, get, take advantage of the resources that we're putting out there in the web. So visit the FIDO Alliance website, um, attend our Authenticate conference remotely. I know that sounds self, self-promotional, but really there's a lot of educational content, um, you know, both for people who are at the beginning of their passwordless journey and those who are further along um, to learn from. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate your time with us today. Thank you, James. Well, some fascinating insights there from Andrew, and it's going to be so interesting to see the pace at which society moves away from the traditional username and password approach to authentication and the challenges involved in doing so. Um, Here's Ben with a final message from our sponsor. To sustain growth, organisations need a credible, effective and efficient access management solution that supports all possible use cases a solution that will enable organizations to thrive in a new digital world. Talus SafeNet Trusted Access is that solution. To find out more, visit cpl.talusgroup.com forward slash access hyphen management forward slash SafeNet hyphen trusted hyphen access. Thanks, Ben. Now, unfortunately, that is all we've got time for in this month's episode of the Into Security podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening in. And as always, we invite all of the feedback that you've got to give us. We'll be back next month for another installment on another theme. And hopefully I can also tempt you with the Into Security Chats September episode, which is a deep and meaningful conversation with Mr. Industry himself, Graham Cooley. So if you fancy that, please do go and give it a listen. But until then, thanks for listening. I've been Eleanor. I've been James. And I've been Benjamin. Thanks for listening to Into Security. 
for in-depth interviews with the industry's finest minds, check out our sister podcast, Into Security Chats. Join us again next month. Until then, stay safe and keep up to date with everything you need to know about information security via the infosecurity-magazine.com website.